Hello, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. COVID continues to surge throughout the state, and hospitals are reporting bed and staff shortages, as well as staff fatigue. Has it helped that healthcare workers have been sent to Alaska? The state and the hospitals are pivoting to crisis standards of care, but what does that really mean? Last week, the COVID vaccine was approved for children ages 5 to 11. This has a lot of parents asking tough but good discussions with each other and their children. So what should you do? To help us answer these questions, I am pleased to have back Dr. Ann Zink, Alaska's chief medical officer. Please call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, you can call us at 550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Zink, um, a frequent guest on many radio shows, but welcome back to Line One. Awesome. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, of course. Um, let's go ahead and just start by giving, uh, giving us an overview of what's going on in the state. What's the numbers doing currently, um, i.e. total cases, total deaths, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate many Alaskans following along. There's lots of important public health information, but COVID continues uh, to be the major area of focus for a lot of our health team. So we continue to see fairly high case count. We're still in what we call the red zone. So greater than 100 cases per day, average over seven days, kind of puts us in that high alert. And you can take a look at our dashboard and look at your region. But currently we're about five times that at 532 cases uh, per day, average over seven days, so uh, high. We have had a decrease over the last couple of weeks. We are at this awkward plateau for almost a month, a month to six weeks, uh, but it's starting to look like we're slowly starting to come down. Um, this, this plateau has lasted longer uh, and been a little bit harder to decrease uh, than I think we were all hoping in many ways. Unfortunately, Alaska still has the most cases per capita, so we still are really experiencing a surge here. The United States as a whole was really coming down on the cases, but the last two weeks have plateaued as particularly in the Mountain West, cases are picking up as well as the Northeast uh, in that region. So we see a variety of patterns across the country, um, but are grateful are starting to move down a bit here. We're also seeing other metrics that are starting to slowly improve here in the state of Alaska. Percent positivity has also been decreasing. We're down to 7.7% positivity. Certainly some limitations in that data and particularly with antigen testing on the market, uh, we're looking at changing that metric uh, over time, but it's one that we're currently still using and then you mentioned at the beginning of your intro, our hospitals have been very full and very uh, overwhelmed for quite some time, uh, but that is getting better. You know, we meet on a daily basis with the hospitals. We also have a crisis care committee that meets weekly. We met last night um, and, and the data reflects their experiences where we've seen a decrease. We're about 14.4% of people in the hospital right now are, are because of COVID. Uh, we were hovering over 20% for, for multiple weeks there. We currently have 131 people hospitalized in acute care hospitals because of COVID-19 uh, with 20 patients currently vented. Unfortunately, you know, deaths do take a while to be reported in um, because the death certificate process has to go through its normal process. And we also know that hospitalizations and deaths tend to lag behind cases. 
So we have had uh, a series of deaths uh, that have been announced here recently, quite a few this week. We have nine additional ones uh, announced today. So unfortunately, we, we really still are seeing a major impact on both uh, people's overall health, on their, their ability to, to be healthy and well and interact with their family and loved ones, but also in hospitalizations and in deaths. Sure, sure. I imagine the logistics behind this are extensive to try to get all of these uh, numbers and the reporting from all areas of the state. So um, I don't don't envy that uh, that job at all. Um, what about our, our state vaccination rate? What's what's happening with? Um, and you can exclude the kids for now because I'm sure we don't have much data on that. But where where's the state for the vaccination rate? That's a really great question. And what we consistently see is that regions, states, countries that are highly vaccinated, you start to see this decoupling between hospitalizations and deaths with cases. You know, it matters much less on the case rate when you have a lot of people vaccinated because the vaccines were really designed uh, to keep us healthy, well, and out of the hospitals. Uh, they also do decrease the chance we'll get COVID and the chance we'll transmit it. And so they do have an impact on cases as well. Every week we see thousands of Alaskans who choose to get vaccinated uh, and that is outside of this kind of additional group of the five to 11 year old. We did change our dashboard this week to better reflect that five to 11, but as you mentioned, it takes a while for people to report in that data, but we are including that as of right now. So currently, if you look at the five plus age group in the state of Alaska, 59% of Alaskans have started their vaccine series, so had at least one vaccine. If we look at the 18 and above, almost 70%, so 67% uh, percent of Alaskans have had at least one dose of vaccine with slightly less than that are fully vaccinated. And then the group that actually is concerning to me and continues to make up a lot of our mortality um, is our 65 plus. So 79% of our 65 plus have received at least one shot of COVID-19 vaccine. You know, that's the group that has been at highest risk and where we continue to see high risk, um, particularly in unvaccinated individuals. Um, about 88% of all of our hospitalizations and about that for deaths uh, are, are in unvaccinated individuals. So hoping to continue to encourage those 65 and above uh, to go ahead and get vaccinated. Our, our numbers there are a bit lower uh, than most other states as well as many other countries that have readable, ready access to vaccine. Okay, so that's an interesting um, so comment. So it's 18 and above, about 70% of Alaskans are vaccinated, which, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a good number or a bad number or a medium number, but it is less than when what you're seeing. Is it nationally or internationally? Can, can you compare us a little bit? Sure, yeah. So it's 67% of those 18 and above. Uh, we are the 34th state in the country for vaccine rates. So we aren't the very bottom, but we're below average uh, for our vaccine rates when you look 18 and above. Um, so we, we still have a ways to go. You know, Delta is different. Delta is deadly and it transmits much more easily from person to person. And so uh, to really slow down this virus, it does require more people to be vaccinated. It's really fascinating to watch the international experience with vaccine. Um, many countries still don't have access or ready access to vaccines. We're seeing countries where they chose not to vaccinate kids really continuing to suffer with kind of large spikes of cases because we know kids continue to be efficient transmitters. And that puts not only kids at risk, but it also puts their family and their elders and grandparents at, at risk as well. In some countries like Spain, it's been pretty impressive to watch incredibly high vaccine rates, uh, including and especially those who are older, nearing 100% of those 65 and above uh, have gotten vaccinated. And, and so then when you see spikes in cases, you really don't see that same uh, spike in hospitalizations and deaths in the same sort of way. So uh, every country has been a bit different in this. There's been also countries that have really spread out their vaccine series. So they did 
their first dose for everyone who was eligible and then circled back around, uh, sometimes months later to do their second dose. And it does look like um, if you see the vaccine at a, a greater range like that, it offers better protection. And we do see some waning protection over time. And it's part of the reason why boosters are highly recommended right now, just to have that distance between that first series and an additional one um, and why it's really important Alaskans uh, who have chosen to get vaccinated. Really, if you're above 18 and it's been greater than six months since you had an mRNA vaccine, or it's been greater than two months since you had a J&J &J vaccine that you consider getting a booster shot, particularly with our high case rate. That won't always be the case. You know, Our body remembers uh, that kind of natural immunity that you build up when you see that vaccine and our cases will come down. But right now with a lot of cases uh, and people still being at risk, you know, really consider getting a booster if you're greater than 18 uh, and it's either been six months since an mRNA or two months since a J&J &J vaccine. Okay. And and just to be clear, um, the vaccination rate, so you said 67% for above 18 and uh, greater than 65 was about 79%, but it's not 100% because the vaccine's not available. Um, the the <laughs> vaccine is, is fully available. We have enough for people, correct? Yeah, it is definitely available and it is definitely free. So um, yeah, it is. And if you have any questions about where to get it or how to get it or want to, you know, we have a call line with a live Alaskan seven days a week at 907-646-3322. Uh, and we are happy to connect you. There's translators available uh, on that service line uh, to a vaccine and a vaccine clinic near you. Um, to go ahead and get vaccinated. So we have plenty of vaccine, even the 5 to 11. We received over 50% of the population's worth of vaccine in that first week. And so while we did see some you know, demand in certain areas and less demand in other areas, we're continuing to work through that. Um, there, there is plenty of vaccine for people to get vaccinated. It's, it's a little bit more vaccinators and appointments for that 5 to 11. And the older group, there is, there is ample vaccine. We're very, very fortunate in this country. I, I can't even tell you how lucky we are compared to my colleagues in, in other countries um, and even honestly other states um, who have been really struggling to get vaccine out. So sure. we're, we're lucky. Well, I want to give the, the call in number one more time and then uh, I have another question for you and we'll go to some calls. But the number statewide is 888-353-5752 in Anchorage 550-8433 or email line one at alaskapublic.org. So I guess, um, Dr. Zink, the next question I have for you is maybe delicate or, you know, I'm sure you get asked a lot, but if it's not a vaccine eligibility or um, if there's plenty of vaccine available, what do you think is affecting the, the rates of the surges um, right now? What, what's the primary thing? Is it, is it geography? Is it distribution? Or is it politics? What are you seeing play out? I mean, it's as multifactorial as we are human uh, in many, many ways. So, you know, to separate out between the disease and vaccination, uh, let's just start with vaccination. We see huge variability in our state on regions and their vaccine rate. So we see regions that almost have, and some communities that 100% of those who are eligible have been vaccinated. 
And they aren't always communities that saw a lot of cases. We have communities in Alaska who have never had a COVID case and they have 100% of their uh, community who's eligible are vaccinated. So we see, we see some communities that have just uh, really done tremendous work in that space. And then we see other communities that continue to really struggle and have low vaccine uptake, even though they continue to see a lot of cases, a lot of hospitalizations uh, and a lot of deaths. You know, I, I work in the emergency department as well. I've never taken care of a patient who wants to be sick or wants their community to be sick or doesn't want others to be well. There's just a lot of misinformation. Um, and I think people have kind of settled into their beliefs. You know, my cousin, just for an example, she, um, the only people she knew in her entire life that were vaccinated were her family members. No, none of her friends, none of her friend group, no one else uh, that she knew was vaccinated. And so it was a big leap of faith for her to make that decision uh, to be vaccinated. Um, and, and she had kind of family support in that, which not everyone does. So I think it's just important to remember that we all uh, live in slightly different worlds. It's easy to get in our own echo chambers, um, but most people are trying to do the best that they have uh, with the information they have. That then does play a role into this disease. So COVID uh, is just incredibly contagious. It's not the flu. You know, influenza moves about one person will get sick and they'll infect one, one and a half other people. And I think we've really done a disservice to the public over the years when someone came in with viral-like syndrome and we'd say, ah, it's just a virus. Um, or people oftentimes would say, oh, I've just got the flu. The flu can be really bad. Uh, and I have seen young, healthy people die from influenza and I've seen kids die from influenza and it can be a really scary disease. And man, COVID is much worse. So COVID one person who gets Delta with no other breaks in that transmission can easily spread it to five to six other people. Uh, and it has a higher mortality rate across the board as well as long COVID and other symptoms that we see. So I think that people continue to underestimate the risk of COVID and overestimate the risk of vaccine. And it takes a lot of people to have a degree of immunity to slow this virus down. Again, thinking back to the very beginning when we talked about um, people a little bit like a forest fire and wood, if you've previously had COVID or if you've been vaccinated, uh, you're much less likely to get COVID and kind of like having, uh, you know, wood that's wet, that's less likely to catch on fire. Mm -hmm. It's less likely to but when you get a lot of people who are infected, like we've got here in Alaska, it just burns fast and hot and it can even then break through and, and be able to infect people who are previously vaccinated because they're just so exposed to COVID overall. So it's both an individual protection, but it's really a population protection as well. It's, it's how we care for our family, our community, our workplace, our businesses, as well as ourselves. No, absolutely. I have a call here, uh, Joe, not sure where in the state Joe's from, but Joe, can you hear me? Hi, Joe. What can we answer for you today? Um, okay, well, the quick question is, is it possible to access the list of people who are considered to have died from COVID um, here in Alaska? And the reason I'm asking is because um, my dad did die. Um, he was about 90 years old. He got, you know, we followed the book. We got vaccinated real early. He was one of the early guys. We took him down to cars and got him vaccinated. And, um, and... Anyhow, a few months later, um, he had some serious health issues and was in Providence for a month uh, under all those quarantine conditions. Um, and the doctors uh, told us that uh, he had unusual swelling of the organs. It was um, very unusual, they thought. And, and then um, they found out he had a MRSA-like, non-MRSA superbug, um, which they took a long time testing different antibiotics trying to uh, get on top of that. So. 
anyhow, after a month um, in the hospital, uh, he came home, and his oxygen rate was pretty good. Um, but uh, he had an IV drip for the super antibiotic to fight the superbug. And, um, you know, the, uh, the little meter on the finger, you know, it started going crazy on day three. And, um, you know, he was, he was jumping between 60 and 30 and whatever. Um, anyhow, uh, he suffocated to death at home. And, you know, it was, it was, everyone was there. But um, my question is, guys, um, you know, it, it looked like a COVID death as far as a layman was concerned um, because he suffocated. But um, the, uh, um, I, I, I don't know if, I don't think, because he had a super bug. So, sure. You're, so you, you wanted to know if he's would be attributable or on the list. Yeah, we see these numbers. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we did everything right. Um, we played it by the book, and you know the unusual. I would like, you know, he, he didn't get the Pfizer. He got the, the earlier first one to show up in Alaska. I forget what the name was, but um, I'm just wondering um, because later on we heard that there was a reaction to one of the um, one of the um, shots. Sure, sure. Unusual swelling of the organs. So you know, I didn't go back and ask all these details. We just wanted to, you know, have our peaceful get it squared away situation and you know, all the family issues. But um, anyhow, where is the list of names? Um, and uh, I, I, my neighbors lost their son, and she told me that they tried to say it was COVID, and she got upset about that. Um, but, and she said, why would they try to put him on the COVID list? And she, it became a political issue for her. So uh, I'm just wondering, with all these hard decisions and, and issues, politicizations and stuff, uh, is the list available? And... Um, uh, that, I'll just stop there. You know, I yeah. just don't understand my situation. No, thank you, Joe. I, I'm, you know, sorry for your loss. Obviously, it's never easy. And um, I'll, I'll pose your question here to Doctor Zink about names, and I think I'm going to know the answer, but uh, there might be a way to find out. So, Doctor Zink. Yeah, no, Joe. I really share Justin's comment. I am so sorry for your father and the loss for your family uh, in many ways, and I think it's been particularly hard for families. Uh, to, I mean, it's, the COVID's just been hard in so many ways, and it can look like COVID, it cannot look like COVID, and, you know, your story, it really highlights some of the challenges just within medicine overall. A couple different things, you know, we don't release a list of names to protect the person's individual information, so we don't have, like, a list of names. However, you as a family can request the death certificate, and on the death certificate, there are, like, up to four different reasons why someone has died that are listed on the death certificate. So we use the same process for listing COVID deaths that we do any other disease uh, in the state. And we basically see if the clinician lists it on the death certificate as a cause of death. It's not a perfect, medicine's definitely an art uh, more than necessarily a science. And so sometimes it's incredibly clear and sometimes it's not incredibly clear uh, in that space. One of the other challenges with COVID, and I think you really highlighted this in your story, is it can look like so many other things. Uh, so we get patients who, you know, can get a lot of swelling in their organs. They can have a shortness of breath. Their lungs can fill with fluid. And those can be common reactions to overwhelming bacterial infections or viral infections. Um, and, and COVID can be a great mimicker in that space. So I, if, if you want to know as a family, I would request a death certificate. We also have up on our state website information about the death certificate review process and how that goes about. Uh, and if we have a conflict between like what a family thinks someone might have died from versus what we had on the death certificate, 
then we encourage that family to talk to that provider so they can understand why that provider listed it. Again, it's not our job as a state to determine why someone died. We're just reporting out that information uh, that is there uh, in general. The other thing that I would just mention, you know, you brought up vaccines potentially causing swelling. You know, we do see cases of what are called myocarditis or pericarditis, which are inflammation of the heart or the lung, particularly the heart and the heart sac. Uh, myocarditis is inflammation of the heart uh, itself and pericarditis is inflammation around that sac. That tends to be in younger individuals, younger men particularly, and it's somewhere about 30 cases per million that we see, and that is kind of the highest risk. Um, it tends to be self-limiting uh, and gets better quite quickly. And in fact, young men in that same age group are 16 times more likely to get myocarditis or pericarditis from COVID than they are the vaccine. So that's why the vaccine is still recommended even in that age group. It is incredibly unlikely in older individuals. Um, so the fact it was your father uh, makes him much less likely that it was a reaction to the vaccine in that age group. Um, but again, without you know being his physician and going into the details, it's always hard to know, but that's just some general statistics on the inflammation that we, that we do see rarely, but do see associated uh, particularly with the mRNA vaccines. But wishing you and your family best and, and feel free to contact the Havers team that does the death certificates if you're looking for the death certificate. Thanks, Dr. Zink. I um, want to take a quick break here. You are listening to Line One, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide, 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage, 550-8433, 550-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on covid with Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead, whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active. It's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine. Stay active and involved. Check in with friends and family and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink. Do you have COVID-related questions, vaccine questions? Call us toll-free statewide, 888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. Or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, uh, Dr. Zink, quick question here um, before we get to a couple of these calls. Um, question from Elizabeth in Anchorage um, about a booster. She's young, healthy, in her 30s, and is a healthcare worker. Thank you, Elizabeth. 
She's uh, wondering about if it's better to wait longer to get a booster, rather like more like 10 months versus six months, and if you think we're going to be needing kind of annual boosters moving forward. Yeah, great question, Elizabeth. And uh, yes, thank you for your work and service. You know, we got a lot of COVID right now. And as a healthcare worker, you are at higher risk uh, for exposure to COVID-19. Um, really, if you got the mRNA vaccine, that, that six-month period is, is good. I would not wait 10 months uh, right now with the cases. If we had really low case count, uh, then I think it's reasonable to think about waiting a longer period of time. We do see a little bit increased uh, protection when people wait longer, like for the J&J, you see Good protection when you get it as a second dose at two months, but you see even better protection when you get it at six months. But that doesn't mean you should wait. You still want better protection than the, just the one shot. So really, if you're a healthcare worker, even though you're young and you're healthy, um, and it's been greater than six months since an mRNA vaccine or two months since a J&J, I would seriously consider going get it. As a healthcare worker myself, I did get boosted six, it was a little bit after six months, but it was once it was available uh, here in the state. Um, and I'm grateful I have. So I would I would seriously consider it right now. Awesome. Okay. And we have a call from Dave in Anchorage. Dave, welcome to line one. Oh, hello. Thanks uh, for taking my call. Sure. What can we uh, What can we answer for you, Dave? I would like to know when they give out the daily COVID uh, numbers for infection, if they can break it out to those that were vaccinated against those that were not vaccinated. Interesting question. I will um, pose this to Dr. Zink. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You and a lot of other Alaskans and myself would love that information. A couple different things. The case numbers, it takes a lot of processing on this end, and we just usually get, you know, what they're there, if they were a positive or not in. We're always having to clean that data and make sure there's not duplicates. You know, sometimes people get tested three times. We want to make sure we only report them once. Uh, and so there's a lot of work on the back end. So we can't actually report that on a daily, but what we do do is report it both in a monthly and a weekly summary. So I'd really encourage people to take a look at the weekly and monthly summaries instead of the daily summaries, uh, because there's a lot more information in there. It's a little bit cleaner data, and we are going to be moving in a process to really start to not have as much of the daily reporting, but move to more of this weekly reporting so we can give more information just like what you're looking for. Yeah, that makes that makes sense, Dr. Zink. And, and just thinking for myself, whenever I've been tested, you know, oh, however many times, um, and I've never been asked at the test if I was vaccinated or not vaccinated. So it'd be hard to put all that information together, I think. Yeah, and even if you are asked, it doesn't mean the systems always cross. <laughs> so sometimes there's a lot of delays in the system. Honestly, the IT limitations within uh, the state government, federal government, and working with private entities has been a just massive burden in this space. You know, people have really great questions, like how many people were symptomatic or what are their comorbidities? A lot of that takes just manual review of like, first example, comorbidities of like charts from hospitals going through line by line, trying to figure that out. Um, and that just requires a lot of staff and a lot of personnel, which we don't always have to be able to do that. Um, and, and so we try to do these summaries where we can do it a little bit more efficiently and get out meaningful data. But I, I wish we had more and I wish we could share more, but we just don't, we just don't have that data because we really lack that infrastructure yeah. uh, as a country in that space. Yeah, and the time involved is is another important um, thing. These these things all take time. So um, let's go to Patrick. Patrick um, is an anchor point. Welcome to Line One. Hey, good morning. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Zink, and Line One for a fantastic program. 
Dr. Zink, you are a hero of mine. I'm uh, so happy to talk to you, so thankful that you've been such a steady presence through this pandemic. My question is, um, you know, I just lost a couple of neighbors, and, and then I got my uh, local house rep's uh, newsletter, and it was all about ivermectin and supplements, and there was one little line about, yeah, if you choose the vaccine, I'll let you get it. I was disappointed in that, and then seeing our borough mayor and your city mayor spreading misinformation and not engaging science, I'm so frustrated by that, and I just wonder what else I can do. I mean, I can't vote for you, Dr. Zink. I would if I could, but um, is there something we could do? And, and what comes to mind is that the Iditarod is kind of a part of our common heritage, and we all coalesce around it, and, of course, it's all about racing a vaccine to Nome. Is there any thought of that as a PR message or any other suggestions, um, you know, besides getting vaccinated and talking to others, uh, how we can change that? message from um from our higher-ups or using public money you know 20 bucks for a vaccine or 20 grand i hear for an average hospitalization it's it's so inequitable and it's so not fiscally conservative it's so not prudent to uh spread messages of anti-vaccination i'll I'll hold it there thank you thank you patrick for your for your call and your clear head i think we have many similar um, similar lines of thinking. Um, so, Doctor Zink, um, Patrick has raises a great suggestion here, or, or you know, and we can transition this also into your recent op-ed with misinformation and communication. What what can we do to get the message across? I'm sure you think about this all the time, but w- what are your current thoughts? Yeah, no, Patrick, thank you for your kind comments and, and calling in today. It's challenging. It is really hard uh, to communicate effectively. And I think we're always thinking of and trying uh, new ideas and and sharing. I I think that I go back to the fact that particularly when communities are really advocating for things like, um, you know, ivermectin, which is a a Nobel Prize winning FDA approved medication, just not for COVID. And it can be used off label. Um, There were some initial studies that looked promising, but now really the the overall body of information uh, does does not support that at the same time. People are, they just wanna be healthy and they wanna be well, and they are looking for um, a a treatment. I think it's much easier to uh, be okay with a treatment than prevention um, in many ways. Uh, once you're sick, you're kind of desperate for taking anything to feel better. Um, but prevention is, is our best, best tool. Staying physically active, staying mentally healthy, eating well, uh, and as you mentioned, getting vaccinated is incredibly important. I think at this point, it's really become about trusted voices, about meeting people with compassion, meeting them where they're at, uh, hearing their reasons uh, for, for hesitancy. There are clearly some actors in the disinformation space uh, that are profiting on disinformation, but I think there's just a lot of good people who um, are nervous and scared and, and looking for treatment options. And I think that there's many reasons to be skeptical about big pharmaceutical companies and healthcare in general. It's a broken system in many ways. And so I understand the reason for people's hesitation. But as you mentioned uh, at the end of your comment, which I think is, is a really important one and we need to spend more time emphasizing uh, prevention is a lot cheaper uh, than treatment in many ways. And viruses are incredibly hard to treat. Our best tool against viruses has been and continues to be vaccine. We have so many viruses that we don't have good treatments for. Uh, it's really by using our own natural immune system to take down the virus quickly when we see it. And it does that best when it is taught by vaccination. And as you mentioned, vaccines are cheap. They're free for Alaskans. They have been you know, provided by the federal government simply because they are so much cheaper than 
losing out on businesses, hospitalizations. You know, we did some Medicaid reporting data. And even if we were like other states uh, on our last report, so other Western kind of states that tend to be rural, and we were to have the same number of hospitalizations and deaths, we would have spent over 10 million additional dollars on Medicaid. That's just COVID. That's just this one, uh, you know, pandemic. And that's just looking to date at hospitalizations. That doesn't even take into account things like long COVID. So it is really economically, uh, our best option is to prevent illness in the first place and to minimize its impact on us, which is, is vaccination. So I think it's just continuing to reach to our neighbors, asking the whys, uh, finding common ground uh, between them and um, being humble to the fact that we'll continue to learn as science changes and grows and and building on on the resiliency and the things that unite us like the Iditarod. So they're requiring everyone who's participating in the Iditarod to be fully vaccinated. Uh, they have been messaging in that space, uh, but I'll definitely take it back to our PR team. We're always we're always thinking of and trying to come up with new ways, um, but that space too is limited just on the number of personnel, but it's a challenging space. Yeah, thank you. Okay, um, Diane from Anchorage uh, has a question about children's vaccination. Great transition here. Uh, Diane, welcome to Line One. Thanks. Um, the children's vaccine hasn't really been tested on a lot of kids, really, really young kids, you know, um, but my concern is in the on the second dose, um, and it's only Pfizer so far, and my concern is that uh, I've had several examples of people in my family and some other friends where, uh, and, and, you, and you, we know very well that teenage boys uh, can have myocarditis after that, primarily after that second shot. And with my family member who finally um, did get the Pfizer after being on chemo all winter, uh, of course, the jury's still out and when that should have been given, but after that second shot, uh, you know, his legs swelled and he ended up with some um, uh, congestive heart failure. And another friend had cardiac arrest. And I know it may be some ways may discount this as just incidental, but why can't that uh, second, especially the Pfizer shot, be delayed for several more weeks? I know Moderna waits for uh, four weeks, and I have not heard as many um examples of issues after that second Moderna shot, and maybe you know more. But why not, especially with children, wait several more weeks? It's uh, it, it probably wouldn't hurt, correct? Okay, let's, uh, let's speak with our expert. Thanks for your question, Diane. Yeah, Diane, I really appreciate you calling in and asking. It's a, it's a common question that we're hearing a lot, and thanks for taking the time to ask it. So a couple of different things. If you just look in general, who's most likely to get myocarditis and pericarditis completely outside of vaccination, it tends to be teenage boys in general. So usually because of viruses, it can also be idiopathic and it tends to be teenagers. It tends to be less in that five to 11 group in general. What, as you mentioned, particularly with mRNA vaccines, and it does happen both with the Pfizer as well as the Moderna, we do see cases of myocarditis and pericarditis that do look attributed to the vaccine. And again, it's probably about 30 to 34 per million doses uh, given. We do see a more robust protection after the second shot. And that's the reason the, sec the two shots are recommended for both of those is you get better protection against COVID-19. It's a little bit hard to tease out if it's caused by the second shot or if it's a matter of timing because it can take a while for the body's immune system to develop a bit of response. Remember, these vaccines are destroyed by your body within you know hours to days. 
but what's left is your body's immune response. And that's thought to potentially be the mechanism for causing the myocarditis and pericarditis that we see rarely uh, in particularly teenage kids. What we do see is that the myocarditis and pericarditis in that age group is different than the same type that we see with the virus. So it tends to be shorter. Uh, it doesn't tend to make people as sick as, as the myocarditis and pericarditis caused by COVID. And so it's all the risk benefit ratio. So looking at the risk of COVID, looking at the risk of vaccine, nothing that we do in the world is, is risk-free. Um, it, it really looks like the data supports uh, going ahead and vaccinating the 5 to 11, particularly in the fact that these kids tend to be less likely to develop myocarditis and pericarditis in general. As you mentioned, the vaccine trials uh, were not powered to be able to look for millions of cases. They did not have millions of children. So there could be cases of myocarditis and pericarditis that we see in that age group associated with vaccination. We have not had a case yet known reported uh, in Alaska or in the United States as a whole. And in the vaccine trials, they saw no cases of myocarditis and pericarditis uh, overall. The reason for not delaying on that second shot is again, just the protection that two shots provide compared to one shot. But that could be a choice that families choose to make. Uh, if they you know, choose, they could get one dose and then they could wait a few months to get a second dose. The risk that comes with that uh, is just not having quite the same level of protection. And that's where it can be a really an individual decision and in talking with your primary care provider or your pediatrician about kind of those risk benefit, particularly if someone has a history that would make them more at risk. Looking at the data myself uh, and going through it, you know, both of my children are fully vaccinated with both shots um, of Pfizer vaccine. Um, my children are, are um, just above the 11-year-old. They're not that 5 to 11, but I would easily vaccinate my children if they were in that 5 to 11 age group with both of them at this time, given the risk of COVID. The other thing I would just say about that is, you know, these vaccines and looking at the safety and efficacy, it's not just that child group that we're going off of. It's also the data that we're looking at the the 12 to 18 year group, it's looking at 20 years of mRNA experience. It's our overall understanding of the immune system and the way vaccines work. And honestly, vaccines are one of the safest things we do in medicine, and they're safer than most over-the-counter medications. This 5 to 11 age group, you know, uh, allergy medication, that over-the-counter like cough and cold medication often isn't recommended because of bad side effects that can happen in that age group. And so this is really safer than many of the things that we do even over-the-counter uh, for our children. And so, and we've got a lot of COVID. Kids can, can get really sick from COVID as well. So that's the reason we're recommending this, but talk to your provider or your pediatrician if you've got more questions. Great. Thanks, Dr. Zink. So just to clarify a little bit about the, the children's vaccine and, and specifically, is it only the Pfizer that's available right now for the Correct. children? Only the um, Pfizer is for the 5 to 11. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then is it the same vaccine? Is it is it a different vaccine? Is it just a different dose? What's What's the background of the child vaccine? Yeah, no, great question. It comes in a separate vial. It's the same mRNA wrapped in the same like fatty protein, that lipid structure. And it's suspended in some salts and some sugars, uh, and then you dilute it with some salt water. It doesn't take any preservatives or anything else, so very similar to the adult one. But it is a much smaller dose than the 12 to 18 or the adult dose. And that's not based on weight or size. That is based on the child's immune response. So children's immune system is really designed to make really robust responses to viruses. Um, and that is the that's the immune system that we kind of then carry with us for life. And so it doesn't take as much vaccine to create a really good, robust immune response. 
and that may also be part of the reason that there is some thought with the, the myocarditis and pericarditis in that teenage group. Um, and there's still a lot of science to be learned in that. It's part of the reason that we recommend high dose flu vaccine for elderly. And it's why we continue to see that elderly are going to be most likely to have vaccine breakthrough complications just because uh, their immune system is not designed to be able to have as strong of a robust response to the vaccine as a whole. So it's a smaller dose, yet it's the same product and same no preservatives. Okay. And then Emily wrote an email from Fairbanks um, saying that it seems the pediatric vaccination in Fairbanks is, is quite limited at the moment. They're having trouble finding appointments. People that are giving it are fully booked. Um, any resources available in uh, either statewide or Fairbanks area that you're aware of? Yeah, so great question, Emily. Um, I do think that Fairbanks has been a little bit more limited than other places. It's not been the amount of vaccine. It's been the amount of vaccinators. And so the pediatric groups uh, there are um, working hard to expand uh, more appointments very quickly. I would encourage you to call that number, that 646-3322. That's our state line that it can help people find vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, or testing. Um, and as we get additional sites in in, Fair, in Fairbanks, we're, we're continuing to post that up. That number is good for anyone in the state. It does not have to be limited to Fairbanks. But public health nursing is starting to offer a whole bunch of additional clinics. We're working with some of the additional contractors out there. And there's a lot of things scheduled this week and this weekend specifically for that age group. So thank you for your patience, but feel free to call and uh, hopefully you can find something soon. There's various vaccine. It's just healthcare workers are exhausted and there's not a lot of additional staff to continue to offer vaccines. Um, I'd also encourage people to take a look at their local pharmacies. So particularly Walmart uh, has been getting a separate supply from the federal government uh, and is offering it um, cars and uh, and Fred Myers as well. But we've been seeing more vaccination happening there. So you can you can check out those local areas as well. Great. And I'll add in there, uh, Beth uh, had emailed from Fairbanks about the Aging and Disability Resource Center North. They are helping to arrange uh, assistance for individuals with vaccines and boosters and they can be reached at their website or 907-457-1622. Okay, um, Dr. Zink, let's go to, well, let's go to Roger. Uh, Roger on line two, please. Uh, Roger, you're calling in from Talkeetna. Welcome to line one. Oh, thank you. Um, and I, I want to thank you, Anne, for everything you've done, and you're a great spokesperson for the state. So thank you so much. Um, questions. Um, I'm over 65. I'm immunocompromised. Um, I'm living with my brother's kidney, and it's almost 30 years this December. Anyway, um, I got my booster in September, um, and uh, do I, question is, do I go in for a booster every six months, or is this booster good for quite a while? And the other thing is um, precautions I should take when I get together with people that are all vaccinated. Um, do I continue to wear masks, social distance? Uh, those are my questions. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Dr. Zink. Yeah, Roger, uh, thanks for kind comments. And it's great to hear that you're vaccinated and boosted uh, at this point. So at this point, no recommendations for an additional one except if you are on so much immunosuppressive medication for your kidney transplant that you would meet criteria for um, being immunosuppressed in a three-dose series. So this gets kind of complicated, so I really appreciate you asking the question. If someone is immunocompromised, taking regular like steroids or immunosuppressant medication, 
then their initial series should be a three-shot series and then an additional booster when the time is right. So you may actually be one of the very kind of rare uh, people that uh, four shots is actually recommended, your two initial shots, uh, and then the third shot is part of the immunocompromised group, and then a booster shot. So talk to your, your clinician. It's great to hear that you are doing so well so many years after your incredibly generous brother's kidney donation, and so you may not be on high-dose immunosuppressants, but it may be worth considering. After that, it's unknown. We just need to be able to continue to follow the data and watch cases. There's actually some other things that are starting to show up on the EUA front, including like long-acting monoclonal antibodies that may be beneficial for people who are significantly immunocompromised and will never mount a good response uh, to vaccines. So we're continuing to watch that front uh, closely, but really talking to your transplant team is going to be your, your best option, but you may qualify. Regarding additional protection, I think that's always this question that we're all trying to figure out every day, right? Like, do I meet with them? Do I get together? Do I not? Do I go into that store? I, you know, I think that having a well-fitting mask, like a KN95 mask, can be easy to breathe through and can provide really good protection to you as well as those around you. So throwing that on while you're, you know, headed into the store or, you know, potentially interacting with people that you don't know their vaccine status. Regarding hanging out with people who are vaccinated, you know, there it does possess a small risk because people who are vaccinated can still get COVID and they can still spread it. They're just less likely to. Um, and so I think it's a matter of risk benefit, thinking about uh, what's really important to you, who those people are, and what additional precautions, really making sure people stay home if they're not feeling well. And then honestly, I really think we need to start incorporating more antigen testing in our world. So say you want to get together with, you know, friends or family who are fully vaccinated for Thanksgiving, you know, adding something like an antigen test the day of uh, Thanksgiving before people get together would provide an additional level of protection, uh, particularly for someone like yourself who's, who's immunocompromised uh, and things like Thanksgiving are hard to wear masks at. So a couple other tools, uh, but I do think we need to add in testing more often in an additional layer of protection as we move forward. Great. Okay. Well, let's take our second break and we'll come back for our closing. You are listening to Line One, your health connection. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Zink today, call us statewide, 888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on COVID with Dr. Ann Zink. Line One, your health connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center with over 30 years of commitment to the community with a comprehensive patient-centered focus approach. Learn more at provimaging.com. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink. Do you have questions that um, perhaps we can answer? We can talk a little bit about crisis standards of, of care. Call us toll free, 888 353 5752. Five five zero eight four three three in the Anchorage area, or email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. Okay, um, let's see, Doctor Zink, bunch of emails here. One thing I did want to answer because I got a few of these was, do you foresee a annual COVID vaccine? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, 
I don't know. That's definitely a fuzzy crystal ball question that is hard to answer. I think it's important to emphasize how much better these vaccines are than influenza vaccine. Flu vaccine lasts somewhere between three to six months and somewhere between 40 to 60% efficacious, yet we save thousands of lives every year from the flu vaccine. It's incredibly important we do that. These vaccines are better, more than 90%, uh, and do look like they last longer. So I, I think it's going to depend on the overall case rate in the world as well as the country, um, and it is going to depend on how long that that protection lasts. Um, but it's it's definitely a different vaccine, and this is a different virus than than influenza. So I, you know we have other ones like tetanus that we do every five to ten years. There's other ones that we do as kids that we don't ever need again unless we're exposed. Some of them we don't ever need again. So every every virus is a little bit different. Every vaccine is a little bit different. Uh, I think we'll have to continue to follow it and um, and see. But when we have a lot of COVID, we need more protection. So that's that's why we are recommending things like boosters right now. We got a lot of COVID. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about crisis standards of care. This is something that was in the local media um, quite prominently recently. And with the hospitalizations, the full hospitals, certainly there's been a lot of uh, mention of it and politics around it. Um, just for our listeners, I, I'd like you to, to explain what a crisis standard of care is, um, you know, and, and mainly is this rationing of care? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. And those of us who work in medicine every day, it's it's much easier to understand because it's what we do every day. But when you're looking from the outside in, it can be really hard. You know, every day hospitals, clinicians are making decisions about who to prioritize for health based on a whole series of factors. You come into the emergency department, you get assigned what we call an ESI level of one to five, depending on what your vitals look like, how sick you are, your chief complaint. And that prioritizes who comes back and then kind of who gets, you know, the x-ray first or the CT scan first. Same thing happens with transport. You know, I work at Matsu, you know, sometimes there's only one transport that we can do to Anchorage and we might have four people who are waiting. And so we talk as clinicians, okay, whose who's condition is most life-threatening? How do we balance this for the overall benefit of, of all the people? So I, I want to start by just emphasizing that happens in healthcare every single day as a part of our, our regular process and trying to use limited resources to benefit the most people uh, as, as well as we possibly can. What can be challenging, particularly when you're very overwhelmed, you're seeing a lot of patients, uh, the whole system kind of becomes bogged down, is to see the whole big picture and say, okay, how can I make sure that this person in a rural area gets access to say like the dialysis machine instead of someone who might be in the emergency department of a hospital that already has it? And so crisis standards of care was a, really a document that had originally been developed uh, over 20 years ago to say in a time of just overwhelming demand for a limited system, is there a more rational way that you can think about the resources and do the most good for the most number of people uh, that you possibly can? And what does that look like? And how do you do that overall? They were very much designed on limited things more than limited people. So you only have so many vents or you only have so many dialysis machines. They were not really designed well to think about transport, particularly in rural areas, and they were not really designed well to think about staffing. And so the, those things uh, are not well reflected. Uh, the state really, when COVID first stood up, uh, convened a group of providers to look at a series of different crisis standard of care documents uh, and ended up basing our document off of Minnesota, who had done extensive work in this area, including ethicists and disability rights groups and, and thinking about different tools uh, and adapting that. We did make some changes last August, but then when our hospitals really started to surge uh, here again this fall, the question became, 
how can we make sure that we're doing the most good for the most number of people uh, overall? And so again, revisiting that document uh, and uh, convening the hospitals on a daily basis to say who's got beds, who's got availability. It's been pretty remarkable to watch them move patients uh, and supplies and resources together uh, to be able to serve the most amount of patients. And then we have a crisis care committee that meets every single week. And as a part of that, we look at what are the resources that are limited and how can we kind of like from a, not an immediate bedside care, but from, a, you know, being able to be a little bit separated from it, provide tools and resources to either clinicians on the ground or systems to provide the most good for the most number of people. And it was in that process uh, and under old House Bill 76, where there's kind of limited liability protection that exists uh, as part of the, the federal health declaration, the public health declaration, um, we basically said, you know, this is a tool, this crisis standards of care document is a tool that you may need to use. And that care committee said, yeah, we might really need to use it. Hospitals then have stood up their own crisis care committees uh, in their own hospitals. So particularly some of our bigger hospitals may say, okay, I've got 10 people who need dialysis and eight dialysis machines. How do I figure out the best way to do that? And so it essentially convenes a group of clinicians to look at those individual patient needs, look at the resources they have and try to do the most good for the most number of people with the resources we have. So it, it sounds like it's like you're going to get it and you're not going to get it. Uh, and that's really not what's happening on. It's providing additional tools and resources for people to think about how to do the most good for the most number of people when resources are really limited on an individual level, on a system level, like at a hospital, as a state level, and as a national level overall, uh, and providing kind of support across the board. So that's what we're doing, and that's what that crisis standards of care. And that document's open. It's public. Uh, we are continuing to look at it and revise it as we get additional information. Uh, and we will be going out to public comment. It will probably take at least a couple months um, before we have it, but we, this is a, it's a living document. We always want to provide and learn from our experiences uh, and make sure we've got the public's input as well. So that's what crisis standards of care is. Great. No, that's a great explanation. And, and like you said, this is something that, that we do every day and, and people do it in their own lives too. They prioritize what they need to get done that day and you know what's going to get done that day. We, we do it when we're deciding, okay, which person gets to the operating room uh, quicker, you know, who has more more of a need. So this isn't anything new. It's just very um, prominent at the moment, um, I think. So, and then I wanted to, to get your comments, your, your thoughts on the healthcare staff that's been brought to Alaska. I know, uh, was it about 500 healthcare practitioners were sent up to Alaska? Yeah, exactly. It was just under 500. And um, I have to give big kudos to Region 10. That's the FEMA region that we're in. They really, at the beginning of this pandemic, knew that many of our states uh, can be very limited in their healthcare capacity and created a system uh, called GSA contracts, these government service contracts, where we could work with FEMA to be able to potentially contract to get additional help, knowing that staff may be the biggest limitation. So when we saw the surge, hospitals were doing everything they could to get additional staff and just were not able to ramp up in that short period of time. We were able to work with FEMA and Region 10 and put out to bid a series of contracts to bring up additional staff. Didn't know what we would get. We didn't know if they would be able to be filled or it would actually be able to happen. Uh, and man, uh, they were completely filled them. And we were able to bring up about just under 500 uh, healthcare workers to the state, uh, to over 22 different sites. Um, we have been moving them around kind of as needed. Um, some of them are on 30-day contracts. Some are on a full 90-day contract uh, in that space. 
but they have been a game changer in many of our hospitals, not just because they've provided uh, extra staff and extra set of hands, uh, particularly when nurses are stretched so thin, the majority of them are nurses. There's like one physician, a few respiratory therapists, uh, but mainly nurses. But what we really found is a lot of these healthcare workers have been essentially moving from hotspot to hotspot throughout this entire pandemic. Many of them started in New York and have been only responding to this pandemic since that time. And so some of them come with just a real wealth of experience of, of seeing this pandemic firsthand um, when hospital systems have become overwhelmed. So it's been, it's been great to have that camaraderie to learn from their experience uh, and to help kind of share those experiences with frontline healthcare workers in the state of Alaska. And Amon, the healthcare workers here in Alaska have been fighting this pandemic for a lot, a long time, many months. And so, uh, and they've just been asked to do so much, particularly during the surge. And so being able to, to get back to a little bit more normal staffing ratios, being able to provide the care that we really come to, to want to be able to give every Alaskan the ability to have the best care that they can. These contracts have helped. You know, we are looking at what ways do those contracts ramp down as cases ramp down. This is not a permanent solution. And it's been fantastic to watch hospitals in this process, they've also been able to onboard more healthcare workers themselves so that they've got that capacity outside of these contracts. So um, it were, you know, it's great to see them, you know, being able to train and bring in additional healthcare workers to support Alaskans well beyond this contract. Yeah, no, and I'm ho- hopeful that we can get uh, some of those extended longer term. I know I see I see a lot of the the staff at the hospital is very fatigued. It's, it's a lot to deal with and, and treat these patients and internalize what's going on, especially with the politics and the things that are going on outside of the hospital doesn't help. So, um, uh, Dr. Zinka, we have just about one minute here. Any closing thoughts for, for our listeners? Yeah, I would just, you know, emphasize that again, the virus is the enemy, not each other. You know, as you mentioned on healthcare workers, we are human as well. This has been long, this has been hard and kindness and compassion go such a long way. Uh, So just really thank you to every listener who extends and shares that. And, And just no, no pandemic goes on forever. No epi curve goes on forever. This too will get better, but we are not powerless over this pandemic. We have tools. Our strongest tool is getting vaccinated uh, and appreciate every single Alaskan. It's hard work in this space uh, and looking forward to continuing to build a healthier, um, healthier Alaska moving forward. Thanks. No, absolutely. I would just want to, um, you know, extend special thanks for, for you being a visitor with us today, Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink. I want to send special thanks to our audio engineer here, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. Um, I want to also thank all of our listeners. We got a ton of emails today and, and I really, um, you know, was unable to get to all of them, but hopefully we can have another show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing. I wish I could get to all of them. And I also want to let our listeners know that, uh, line one will be taking a break for the holidays. There will be recorded shows, but not live shows. Um, and we're going to be doing this starting Thanksgiving week, and we'll be returning in early January. Next week, Prentice Pemberson discusses youth substance abuse and mental health. Uh, this has been Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Stay safe, Alaska. is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. 
Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Anchorage Bariatrics has been a supporter of Alaska Public Media. Learn more about Line 1 and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.